You're listening to The Last Breath Podcast, your home for more deeply connecting to your inner being, your higher meaning, and your greater purpose. Because creating peace begins now. I'm your host, Dr. Tej Khalsa, MD. Let us show you how to transform stress management into something beautiful. Liberation, our summer retreat, overcoming overwhelm. Why climb when you can fly? We'll make it all easy. Check out our show notes for tickets. Welcome back to the final episode of Season 1, Charting a Path Out of Fatigue and Into Fulfillment. Before we dive in, I want to invite you to take a moment to pause and just notice your breath. Don't try to change it. Don't try to think about it. Just be with it. Become present to the movement of your breath in and out of your body. Accept the flow of your breath as it is, right now. Accept your breath even if it feels shallow. Accept your breath even if you feel like you can't breathe. If you're feeling like something is taking your breath away, that something is preventing you from breathing, Accept that too. Acceptance is very powerful. It involves releasing the social conditioning that would have us deny how we truly feel. Acceptance is therefore a movement in the direction of truth, the starting point on the path towards freedom and justice. I spoke at an event recently for a large American nonprofit organization devoted to reproductive justice. And at the very end, during the question and answer portion, one beautiful gentleman spoke up, a black gentleman, and he said this to me, and I'm paraphrasing here Everything you've taught us today is so beautiful. I love all of it. I love your authenticity. I love the images in your talk, the practices. Everything here is beautiful. But I'm still so tired. I'm just exhausted. I feel like every time I exhale, I just inhale more of the same thing all over again. What this gentleman was saying was real. If you're listening from outside the United States, you may have heard that in America, we are currently facing a massive, highly coordinated attack on reproductive rights at the highest levels of the land by our own Supreme Court. And this attack is a form of denial, a denial of basic human rights and dignity as outlined by the World Health Organization, which considers reproductive rights, including access to contraception and abortion, to be critical human rights issues. The outward attack is real, and just as important is the need for self-care, for repair. This is a critical daily practice. When you are living in constant resistance to outward aggression, be it brutality or structural violence or overt discrimination or implicit bias or judgment or all of the above, to live in constant combat mode is toxic to your health. It will drain you, leave you fatigued, and lead to the biological wear and tear that makes you vulnerable to disease. The only alternative is to invest in yourself to honor yourself as your own best thing, to affirm that the peace and justice you long to create in the world already breathes, already lives deep inside you. 
to invoke Toni Morrison's Nobel Prize winning novel, Beloved, you are your own best thing. You are. If you're going to have some kind of tomorrow, if humanity is to have a better tomorrow, then it begins within you. Just being you. Now come back with me to this national speaking gig and to this gentleman, this activist for reproductive rights who felt exhausted. That's exactly how the forces he was up against wanted him to feel. Because when he's tired, they have an opening. How could I possibly explain to this man? How could I reach him and have him wholeheartedly feel that he is his own best thing? His fatigue felt like a prison, barring my words from reaching him. How was I going to scale this wall and bust him out? I didn't know. But I did know that if I just started with honoring and accepting exactly where he was at, a path would open, would find a way through, together. I started talking. The experience of exhaustion is so real. The experience of exhaling, only to inhale more of the same thing all over again, is so real. And I kept talking. I talked about rest as revolutionary, an idea that has specifically been advanced by the Black Liberation Movement. And just as I was speaking on rest, it came to me. I knew exactly what I really needed to say to this gentleman and his organization. But I bit my tongue. I swallowed my words out of a force of habit. I was fresh out of the corporate academic medical space I was accustomed to representing, and standing now on my own stage, I didn't know if the organization I was speaking to could handle what I was really thinking. And yet, the more I talked, circling around what I really wanted to say, the more I realized I was also circling around this gentleman's heart. The only way to start breaking through the fatigue that separated us would be to speak the truth to speak out loud what I knew inside to be the truth of my experience. So finally, in the presence of this massive American nonprofit and some of its executive leaders, I said this, you must prioritize your self-care because if you don't have a daily practice, what is constantly coming at you will wear you down and it will colonize you on the inside. And just like that, I used the word colonize. In that one word, I was naming the cardinal sin of a white settler population that had enriched itself off of the dehumanization and enslavement of black people and the genocide of this land's indigenous peoples. I spoke out loud to an American organization, to a Zoom room that I imagined to be my brothers, sisters, and siblings, a Zoom room of white folks, black folks, Latinx folks, on the need to disrupt the violence of colonizing ideology through a daily meditative practice. Despite my initial fear of a backlash, I felt something shift. I felt a deeper connection to the group, even though we were in a virtual gathering. I saw the chat light up. I felt a deep peace well up from inside me. A colleague of mine, an abolitionist who brought me in to speak with the group, called me a couple of weeks later, having followed up with the organization. She said, Their biggest takeaway was that if they don't have a daily practice of self-care, the very things they are fighting to overcome are going to colonize them on the inside. 
Listening and learning that this message had landed in their hearts brought me enormous joy. My parting message to them had resonated the way one of Congressman John Lewis's parting messages had deeply resonated with me. In his final memoir, Carry On, Reflections for a New Generation, this freedom fighter called on everyone to have a daily practice of opening up their inner space. He said, If there is one thing that I have learned in all my years, it is that transformation begins within. If you want to change the world and bring about a more peaceful society, you have to start with yourself. There is a battle that rages within. When you're angry, you're quick to fight. Place blame, complain, and criticize. If your inner life is in turmoil, how can you expect others to join you in your mission to heal the world? What the congressman is saying here, I think, is that meditation in the form of deep, deep inner reflection, excavation, is a decolonizing methodology. You see, I can't change history. I can't pretend away atrocity. I can't wave a magic wand at the systems of oppression that shape the movement of every human in this world, including myself. But I can start to call back my power through my daily practice of meditation. Those external forces coming at me also show up every day inside me, in the battle raging within. Through my daily practice, I can decolonize. I can feel into and reveal at the root what ails me. It heals me. It clears the path back to peace within and somehow always, always helps me see how I can go forward. Let me give you a concrete example. Two years before the murder of George Floyd, I had my first encounter with Minnesota law enforcement. It wasn't even an encounter, to be honest. My son and I were in the backseat of a taxi heading to the Minneapolis-St. Paul airport. Alongside us, in the left lane, riding side by side with us, was the notorious black and white body and red and blue light bar of a Minnesota cop car. It was too close for comfort. I felt my shoulders tense up, my heart started to race, and my breathing got shallow. I thought of my little three-year-old, my innocent black child sitting on my right side in his booster seat, and the large white police officer driving in the car to the left of me. I was sitting in the middle of what felt like violence. I was panicking. I didn't know what to do. So initially, out of habit, I did what I normally do in clinic with my patients before I meet them. I tried to send the cop car some love, just one honest, kind wish inside myself. I whispered, may everyone that sits in the back seat know peace and be protected. May their ancestors know peace. May their descendants know peace. May everyone sitting in the front seat know peace. May their ancestors know peace. May their descendants know peace. May anyone who ever touches this police car lays eyes on this police car know peace. Sending kind wishes was the wrong move. Nothing happened. I quickly realized the folly of my magical thinking. It felt unhealthy to send kindness to someone whose very presence in that moment felt predatory. I only felt drained and depleted. And there was something else, something else that disturbed me too. In my inner space, I could feel the cop car itself. I imagined that I could feel its presence inside me, and it felt like an impenetrable fortress. 
in my imagination, I couldn't even find a back door where kindness could sneak in. Inside myself, I despaired. There seemed to be no hope, but there had to be. There had to be hope for change. Hope was the reason I lived and breathed. The reason, as a mother, I had allowed myself to bring a new life into this world. So I did what I always do when I am stuck. I started to meditate. I accepted my fears of the cop car. I accepted my fear that nothing was ever going to change. I accepted my despair. I accepted that I was having difficulty breathing. And I accepted, too, my longing for hope. I accepted that I needed to hold on to hope in order to live, in order for my child to have a chance to thrive. This time, instead of sending out a loving wish to the cop car, I sent a wish inward to my own heart, overwhelmed as it was with despair. Help me, I said silently. Help me see that there is still hope. As I asked myself this question, the taxi my son and I were riding in turned slightly to the right, heading on to an off-ramp, passing a little tent neighborhood of homeless people camped on the side of the highway. It shocked me that in the richest country in the world, there could still be such a crisis of poverty. I saw the countless tiny tents, their thin plastic sides flapping like American flags in the wind. The cop car continued to cruise next to us, both of us heading down the off-ramp together. My panic intensified. I felt like I was sitting in the inferno of what the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King described as the triple evils. On my right, the trauma of those tiny tents and the suffering endured by the humans inside them, the hopes and dreams of my black baby next to them, and then on the other side of me, this impenetrable fortress that was a cop car, the triple evils of poverty, racism, and militarism. So I turned inward again, back to my heart, and made one final appeal. Help me. Help me see that there is still hope. And just like that, my imagination opened up with both eyes open. A movie started playing inside my mind's eye, broadcasting before me a vision of the future. I saw a homeless man sitting, bent over on a curb, I saw a navy blue uniformed white policeman kneel down onto the sidewalk next to the homeless man, looking him in the eye at the same level, asking how he could help. I saw next to the policeman a person with long brown hair and a bulky jacket and a clipboard that I somehow knew was a transgender social worker. In just a split second, I saw days and weeks go by with this homeless man receiving the healing he really needed. Mental health care, real food, safe housing. I saw how the policeman was part of a multidisciplinary team, a caring team of skilled professionals serving, protecting, and nourishing their community, a community where they were from, lived within, and loved. This beautiful vision of abolition found me, in my despair, revealed itself to me. It allowed me to start breathing again. 
I let my neck and back sink into the taxi's backrest. I gave my three-year-old's warm little hand a squeeze. Two years later, in the same city, George Floyd was brutally murdered by a white police officer in front of a crowd of onlookers. Peaceful protesters rose up across the globe to call for change, but everywhere I looked, it was just business as usual. There were so many strong statements being released by corporations, but with no meaningful action behind them. A major retailer announced an investment of 100 million US dollars towards what they claimed to be fueling economic prosperity across the country in black communities. But this impressive press release was just a mask. When I walked up to the front doors to one of their stores, I saw pieces of computer paper taped to the front of them, advertising hiring opportunities that paid less than a living wage. As a doctor, I saw a clinic's chief executives conduct a ceremony closing its doors to racism, while at the same time keeping its side doors open to a steady flow of white police officers strong-arming black men in chains inside. Everywhere I looked, diversity and inclusion seemed to be on a lot of people's lips, but remained absent from their hearts and minds, including at the highest levels of leadership. The legacy of white supremacy persisted, in the corporate culture inherited from plantation life to the modern-day police force that was a descendant of white settler slave patrols. In the midst of this moral failure, I too had been meditating on my own role in the mess. George Floyd's murder made it vividly clear that all the decisions I had made in the name of survival, in the name of securing safety for my sons, had inadvertently led to the opposite, perpetuating the status quo. A status quo that treated human beings as disposable. To loosely quote Harvard professor David R. Williams, it wasn't a broken system. It was a system operating exactly as intended, exactly as designed. I knew I needed to change. I knew the way I showed up in the world needed to change, but I felt stuck. I had tried going into overdrive, doing as much advocacy work as possible, but it was exhausting. On a daily basis, I was only dealing with more of the same. One chief executive, who had twice voted for the fellow with the red baseball cap, actually booked an appointment with me to complain about her employee's activism. She told me their claim that silence was violence was preposterous, and that she was upset that none of the other chiefs were listening to her objections. It took all my energy to hold my grace and composure during the appointment. It was only at the very end of our session that a tiny shred of insight sparked in her. She said, Well, I guess if I feel this upset about my perspective not being heard this one time, I wonder what it must feel like to be them to live your whole life feeling like you're never heard. Hallelujah, I thought, exhausted. I wished her well, she left satisfied, and I collapsed back in my clinic chair, exhausted. I felt so drained. My joy had packed up and left me a long time ago. And to make matters worse, the universe had now brought me another assignment. In my final months at a famous academic center in Minnesota, one of the patients I was now about to see was a retired Minnesota police officer of German ancestry. He had spent 33 years in law enforcement and was depressed. Psychiatry wanted me to see him. I felt fed up. 
I try to pour my heart into each of my patients. And now I had to do that for law enforcement? Someone that in a different scenario out on the streets might pull over my husband at a routine traffic stop and accidentally murder him? No way. There was turmoil inside me. A battle raged within as I paused outside the exam room door. I tried sincerely to see the retired officer on the other side as a brother while simultaneously refusing to do so. (laughs) About 30 seconds went on like this. I was wasting precious seconds hesitating outside the clinic door, so I gave up. But more specifically, I gave up bypassing my own feelings. Instead, for the first time since George Floyd had been murdered, murdered one hour from my door, I accepted how hard this all was for me. I accepted how draining it felt to always be the one responsible for fixing other people, for feeling like I had to fix the world. It was totally unsustainable to carry the burden of others on my shoulders. There had to be another way. There had to be, but I was so tired. I couldn't even feel what it would be. I had lost my hope for change. So I accepted that. I accepted that I felt hopeless, that I felt lost. I accepted that I felt trapped. And instead of sending the fellow on the other side of the door a kind wish, I sent some authentic kindness inward to my own heart Hampered as it was by fatigue, help me, help me please, help me navigate this, let my grace have the final word. I felt something spark in me, I didn't know what it was, but it was an honest connection within, it was enough, it gave me the strength to go in and face this retired police officer. I pushed the exam room door open and stepped inside to find a giant of a man. He must have been at least six foot five inches, bent over in a chair, like a mighty tree trunk that had caved over after a violent storm. His head was hanging down. He had pale skin, blonde hair, threaded with silver. He kept his eyes fixed on the carpeted floor. He did not look up. I gave some opening remarks and then sat back, listening. He talked for about 10 minutes uninterrupted, revealing to me that he felt suicidal. He was losing hope that anything could ever get better in his life. He kept saying to me, I just don't know. I just don't know. I just don't know. My petite brown five foot two frame sat straight in my swivel chair facing him inside me. A totally different scene was at play. My mind felt like it was in the middle of a game of volleyball. One minute, my attention was inside the court of my heart, connecting to this man and his story. The next moment, my attention was bouncing out of bounds, getting lost in the clutter of my personal grievances and resentment. All I could do was accept that I was fumbling, fumbling back into the noise of my own thoughts. And every time I did that, I was able to return my attention and intention back into the present moment, back into the game listening deeply to this man's words and his heart. It took a lot of moment-by-moment discipline, being intentional with my attention, but I softened. 
so that when the gentleman in front of me stopped telling me his story and got stuck on the words, I just don't know, I just don't know, I just don't know, I was ready. I volleyed these words back to him. I don't believe you. For the first time, he lifted his head to look directly at me. His blue eyes met mine. They had a cloudiness to them, a cloudiness I had seen often in folks who were depressed. But nonetheless, I could see that my remarks had sparked his curiosity. What? What did you say? My patient asked me. He sat up straight to listen. He was even taller than I thought. His features, his frame, were a tower of edges, like an old tree. I don't believe you, I repeated, and I explained myself. I honor your pain. I read about what you suffered as a child at the hands of your father, and I can only imagine the trauma you experienced in your decades in law enforcement. He made an almost imperceptible nod of his head. I continued to validate his pain. I accepted and honored where he was at, and then I gently pushed him a little. And yet, despite everything that happened to you as a child, all the brokenness inflicted on you, I believe, even then, there's more to you than that. I believe that the innocent child you were when you were born still lives, still breathes. I'm certain of it. I read your chart. I read about your granddaughter. I read about how she said, why is grandpa angry all the time? Why is grandpa angry all the time? I think her own innocence awakened you. It awakened that deep part of you, the truth of who you really are, to reckon with everything that has happened on the surface of you. All these knots of anger on the surface of you are starting to unravel. And this depression my colleague has you diagnosed with, this suicide you're contemplating? I don't think that's the real story here. I don't think you're at the end of your story. I think you finally made your way back to the beginning. And I think you know exactly what to do to heal. He kept looking at me and he kept listening. I seemed to be on a roll. Here's the other thing. I've cared for thousands of people in a room just like this or in a hospital at their bedside. I've come to see that every one of us is born with certain gifts, gifts that bring us naturally with ease back into connection. I've come to realize that each one of us is born with a kind of personal medicine. I believe you have your own gifts. You know what your personal medicine is, that medicine that takes you back to your wholeness, that takes you effortlessly back to that deep, deep peace within you. What is it? What is that thing? that's going to help you heal now and help you heal what happened to you. I saw something stir in his eyes. I just kept talking. So all this is why, 
When you say you just don't know, you say you just don't know what to do, I don't believe you. I think you know exactly what to do to heal because you have certain gifts. You wouldn't be alive without them. And more than that, you know deep down you are whole. You know deep down there is peace in you. Everything I'm telling you, you have already experienced. You already deep down know. I sat up straight in my swivel chair, my hands in my lap, thumb and index fingers pressed together in the yogic posture for channeling wisdom. I wondered what he was going to say. There was silence for what felt like a long time, perhaps almost a minute. Sunlight streamed in through the window between us. I remained sitting in my plastic swivel chair with my head and back straight, hands in my lap, breathing. He mirrored me, sitting up straight in his upholstered aluminum clinic chair. His blue eyes began to sparkle. My granddaughter inspires me, he began. I waited to see where he was going to go next. And I like to volunteer some time at our local women's shelter. I like to fix things up for them. And there is a little girl there that's always following me around. She gets excited every time I show up. I wonder what happened to her to make her end up there. His voice trailed off. You like to fix things up at the shelter? I asked, trying to redirect him. Yes, but what I actually love most of all is woodworking. I can start working on a project and get so focused the hours go by without me realizing it. I think when you talk about what brings me peace, that's it. It's woodworking and going out into the woods. I love being out in the woods. I like to camp. But it's been a few years since I did any of those things. I looked at him. Something about you and your story, I said, has me wondering if you are here in this world to be a mender of hearts. Only someone or something broke your heart when you were a child. And I imagine it only got worse with your work in law enforcement. He nodded. So how are you going to find your way back? How are you going to mend your heart? What can you do every day for just a few minutes to find your way back? I was encouraging him to do, in effect what I encourage you to do on this podcast, to start a daily meditative practice. My patient, the policeman, came up with his own healing plan. He had a workshop at the bottom of his property, but he hadn't been down to it in a couple of years. He was going to start woodworking each day, and he was going to plan a camping trip. I cautioned him, give yourself some ease. You haven't been down to that workshop in years, so if you throw yourself into it all at once, it's going to be overwhelming. It's probably all messy and dusty, and I imagine things need reorganizing. Oh yeah. He said, chuckling, I have some projects for neighbors down there that I was in the middle of. I really need to get going on them again. Don't jump into anything. Don't pressure yourself or guilt yourself into finishing projects. 
I said, smiling and shaking my head. This is your time for you. It's like a date every day with yourself. Make this feel as effortless as swallowing a pill. I want you to schedule time each day for the next two weeks to just go down to the workshop every day and get a feel for the space. Just 10 minutes in there, 10 minutes each day, getting a feel for things. The first three days, just open up the windows, get the fresh air flowing in, let the light in, and slowly, slowly, after about two weeks, start cleaning up a little, feel into it, let the workshop speak to you and guide you. Listen, listen for what sparks your curiosity. But do this for just a few minutes only, so that you're more likely to return the next day. He agreed. He also agreed to schedule time to go into the woods, camping every other weekend. When the appointment was over, we walked out together. He was maybe six foot seven, a long column in his brown suede jacket and blue jeans. I felt like a tiny little forest sprite in my flowing navy blue dress embellished with flowers, walking alongside this towering tree. We walked out into the lobby where we found his wife waiting for him. She stood up, thin as a reed, a weathered look on her face, a frown, and fluffy white hair. They made an odd pair. My patient smiled as we said goodbye. He actually looked happy. I felt relieved. I had done my job. We met a few more times. On our last session, just a couple of days prior to me wrapping up my tenure as a physician at the clinic, we took extra time at the end of our appointment to say our goodbyes. He told me he had stopped volunteering at the women's shelter, saying that all the stories of broken homes and abused children were too triggering for him. He also disclosed that he and his wife were going through a trial of separation. Yet he told me he felt like he was back to living again. It was complicated being alive that he was navigating it. He was spending time regularly camping out in the woods. He was also spending time in his workshop, woodworking. He was no longer suicidal. He told me he was grateful to have met me. I said to him, I'm grateful to you too. I have to be honest that when we met soon after the murder of George Floyd, knowing you were law enforcement was really triggering for me. I'm the mother of two black little boys. My husband is black. I have a practice of seeing every patient before I walk into the room as my family, but it was a struggle to see you that way. But when I actually met you and started listening to your story, you helped me. In listening to you, I realized you are in many ways an extension of myself. You too exist in this world as a mender of hearts. Thank you for helping me mend mine. My patient listened. He remained silent. At least half a minute went by. When he finally spoke, he did so with great care, weighing each word. I was going to say to you, Dr. Kalsa, at first I was going to say to you that I wish your boys... And your husband, safe haven, safe haven in this world. But then I realized I wish them more than safe haven. 
I want more for your children than just that. I wish them freedom, the freedom to be themselves, the freedom to be fully themselves in this world, the freedom to be who they were born to be. In hearing his words, my eyes filled with tears and my heart with joy. We said goodbye. I closed my work laptop and relaxed back in my basement office chair. I was on my final day seeing patients at the clinic, just days away from leaving to focus full-time on my own work. If you've been walking by my side through season one, along this path out of fatigue and into fulfillment, you might remember that when we began our journey, I was in a very different place. I was a tired mom with an infant longing for something more than my cubicle, but I was so afraid to venture into the unknown. Just doing something as ordinary as opening up a business bank account almost never happened for me. In the first episode of this season of the podcast, at the doors to my local country bank, I told you the story of my own inner policeman, my self-doubt, momentarily apprehending me, mocking me at the bank doors, saying, who do you think you are? I've come a long way from being the woman paralyzed at the bank door, having to invoke the name of Oprah Winfrey as a fairy godmother to pave my way forward. I've changed. From the funds my little business bank account collected, I created a course in partnership with global experts that's now poised to reach millions of people through the World Health Organization's virtual campus. I know now that when I show up for myself, my capacity to serve others multiplies. If my inner policeman, my self-doubt, were to try and apprehend me again, prevent me from taking another step on the path of my dreams, if it sneered at me once more again and said, who do you think you are? Do you know what I would say now? I would say, I think I am part of you. That's who I think I am. I think I am part of you. And I would say this lovingly, the way a loving mother would speak to her beloved child. I think I am part of you. I think you are part of me. I think there is a place in my heart where I don't know where I end and you begin. And so this is why I will not stop being who I am. I will no longer shrink. I will no longer cower at a bank door. The promised land already lives. It already breathes deep within you, deep within me. Use your daily practice, what I call the last breath practice, to ask yourself every night before you go to bed, when I take my last breath, how do I want to feel? This transcendent question might help guide you back to the peace that's buried deep inside you, the peace that was already there the moment you took your first breath in this world. Return every night to that inner space. 
and rest there. And every morning, rise, rise. Ask yourself, how am I going to come alive today? And moment by moment, breath by breath, allow your thoughts, your words, your actions, the way you treat people, the way you treat the most vulnerable people, to be guided by this deep connection to how you want to feel when you take your last breath. As you come more fully alive, breath by breath, you take us a little closer to the peace and justice and beauty that is the promised land. I'm closing out season one by returning to where I started, the wisdom of Congressman John Lewis from his memoir, Across That Bridge, A Vision for Change and the Future of America. He said, you are a light. You are the light. Never let anyone, any person, or any force dampen, dim, or diminish your light. Study the path of others to make your way easier and more abundant. Lean toward the whispers of your own heart. Discover the universal truth and follow its dictates. Release the need to hate, to harbor division, and the enticement of revenge. Release all bitterness. Hold only love, only peace in your heart, knowing that the battle of good to overcome evil is already won. Choose confrontation wisely. But when it is your time, don't be afraid to stand up, speak up, and speak out against injustice. And if you follow your truth down the road to peace and the affirmation of love, if you shine like a beacon for all to see, then the poetry of all the great dreamers and philosophers is yours to manifest in a nation, a world community, and a beloved community that is finally at peace with itself. So do you want to be free? Inhale so deeply. You want to be free? Feel so your own you light. And exhale. Release whatever you carry, whatever is in the way. Freedom. Inhale deeply. Freedom. And feel now within freedom, freedom calling. Freedom. Exhale. Accept yourself that you are your own best thing and go forward. Shine like a beacon for all to see with every breath you take. I'm Dr. Tej Khalsa, MD. Thank you for staying with me through to the completion of Season 1 of The Last Breath Podcast. Freedom, 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 freedom. So do you want to be free? So do you want to be free? So do you want to be free? The work is fun. Because you're working towards your own enlightenment. The Last Breath Podcast is written and hosted by me, Dr. Tesh Khalsa, MD. 
The podcast theme song is written and performed by me. I'm a physician and educational consultant to the World Health Organization. The views expressed on this podcast represent my views only, specifically my own mission of connecting stress management, resilience, and well-being to our collective secret longing for rehumanization and liberation. The Last Breath podcast is a free public service offered up to our one human family. Special thanks to Diana Williams and David Stenhouse of DDG. Special thanks to Makia Moody of Kairos and Heart Consulting. Special thanks to Avtar Singh Khalsa, whose song Freedom is featured on our season finale episode. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical evaluation or treatment. Our summer retreat is available now. Tickets are limited, so get yours today. Visit our show notes for details.